On June 2nd, tens of thousands gathered outside Buckingham Palace in London. Some waving Union flags, while others were adorned in them head to toe. They cheered as the 96-year-old Queen Elizabeth II walked out onto the balcony to greet the crowds. On Friday, she marked 70 years as a head of state, making her the longest reigning monarch in British history. With this momentous milestone, royal fever has hit new heights. Incredibly proud you know, of, of what we have as a nation, and I think it's terribly important. I think the royal family bring a huge amount you know, to the country, to the Commonwealth, and long may it continue. While much loved by large amounts of the public, the Queen's role in British society is largely ceremonial. She wields no real power and is bound to the decisions of her government. But in the Middle East and North Africa, absolute monarchies persist, with kings holding immense sway over the direction of the country and its subjects. In a world where ruling monarchies have been cast aside in favour of democratic forms of government, how have they remained in the Middle East and North Africa? And what does the future hold for them? My name is Hugo Goodridge. Welcome to the New Arab Voice. There are currently eight monarchies in the Middle East and North Africa. They are Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Bahrain, Morocco, Jordan and Oman. Some of these, Saudi Arabia, ruled by King Salman, and Oman, ruled by Haytham bin Talak al-Said, are classed as absolute monarchies, a central figure or family at the top ruling over everything below. Others, Kuwait, with Emir Nawaf al-Sabah, Jordan, with King Abdullah II, and Morocco, with Mohammed VI, are recognised as constitutional monarchies, while the remaining, Qatar with Sheikh Tamim al-Thani, the UAE with Mohammed bin Zayed, and Bahrain with Hamad bin al-Khalifa, are a mix of both. Despite the label of constitutional monarchies for some, in reality, the heads of states in all these eight countries holds a vast amount of power and influence. To understand why these states still have monarchies, and what the future may hold for them, it's helpful to first understand what an Arab monarchy is. When we think of Arab monarchies, there are a few think, connotations which are conveyed. This is Sean Yom, assistant professor in political science at Temple University in Philadelphia and senior fellow at the Project on Middle East Democracy in Washington. Sean has spent years studying and writing on Arab monarchies. One is that these are familial regimes, which is to say that these are regimes that are predicated upon power being circulated among an incredibly small percentage of the political class, essentially the ruling family. Ruling power in these monarchies is passed down a genetic line. In the Middle East and North Africa, this is done exclusively by men. Uh, and that ruling family, and this would be the second characteristic, has a claim upon power construed not just as being heads of state, but also being leaders of the nation and uh, holders of not just symbolic, but executive authority. That's why these are ruling monarchies, not 
simply constitutional or parliamentary ones. The rationale behind claims of power are imbued with symbolism and help a ruling family foster popular support and legitimise their rule. The form that this symbolism takes varies across the region. Uh, That symbolism can be based on the past. In the cases of the Alawite monarchy of Morocco and the Hashemite monarchy monarchy of Jordan, one important pillar, for instance, is the the putative descent of these ruling families from the prophet himself, which is why these families are unique among all the families of the Arab world. In the case of the Gulf kingdoms, uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, the, the six ruling families of these seven emirates in the UAE, Kuwait and Bahrain, these are ruling families that cannot claim putative descent from the Prophet Muhammad and therefore lack what we would call a Sharifian or elevated appeal to Islamic authority. And they therefore often ensconce their immaterial legitimation in notions of national unity, tribal status, um, asabiyah, the notion that these are coherent collections of people, of tribes, of communities, and that they are first among equals and therefore simply are most qualified to operate and run the mechanisms of power in these, uh, in these nations. For these ruling families, history and symbolism is crucial to their claims, either a historical tie to the Prophet Muhammad or historical tribal claims that put them above their peers and are used in a way to legitimise their rule through what Sean describes as non-performance-based criteria. And by non-performance, I mean, if you think about how democratic governments justify their continued electoral success, they would say, well, we've grown the economy, right? We're really good at foreign policy. We are very good at governing the people. Uh, With Arab monarchies, and with all forms of dictatorship, in fact, uh, performance-based criteria are not necessarily primal, since even if those governments do a terrible job, there's no free and fair election to vote them out. And so most non-democratic governments have to search for some form of non-performance-based appeal or criteria by which to anchor their justification of power. A familial rule concentrated among a very small group, absolute control, and the use of historical symbolism to justify their rule. Broadly speaking, these are the characteristics that make up an Arab monarchy. While being the reasoning or rationale behind their rule, They are a double-edged sword that also weakens the royal institutions. Sadly, having a sole ruler as the head of state is not unique to monarchies in the Middle East. Countries like Syria are ruled over by Bashar al-Assad. Iraq, for a long time, lived under the thumb of Saddam Hussein. In Libya, there was Gaddafi and Mubarak controlled Egypt for 30 years. But it is this characteristic of familial rule that separates the dictators, or one-party countries, from the monarchies. There are institutional forms of hereditary succession that ensure that power tightly is bound to a singular set of genetic bloodlines. And this is really exceptional, I think, in the modern era. I often think of ruling monarchies as the ultimate form of genetic lottery, because what a ruling monarchies says is that the worst member of this ruling family, the most repugnant, corrupt, rapacious, illiberal, reactionary, thuggish, unqualified person to ever lead a nation state by virtue of the genetic lottery, because that male 
happen to have the great luck of being born into these families is far more qualified than the best member of everyone else in society, the other 99.9% .9 of society, to become head of state or to run this country. When it comes to succession in a monarchy and you insist on picking your leaders from a blood relation of the previous ruler, you're really stuck with what you got. It's a very narrow pool. In the neighbouring countries to Arab monarchies, the pool to pick from is much larger. Individuals can work their way to the top. Political jostling can move candidates to the front. This, of course, doesn't inherently mean that the candidates are by virtue better. But the options are likely to be far greater in number. When the question of succession does arrive in Arab monarchies, fragility can be exposed. The fragile nature of succession has long plagued Jordan. Prince Hamza bin Hussein was initially designated as the Crown Prince, only to have that title rescinded in 2004. This year he was placed under house arrest as part of a crackdown on critics. And if a successor to the throne turns out to be weak or ineffective, they risk being removed, one way or another, from that throne. But if succession doesn't work and a family falls apart and the monarchy has to vacate power, that's it for the dynasty. Whereas you can have in a party state a really bad party official who does a terrible job and you can have another party official take their status right, or, or, or take their position. In most other Republican regimes, you know, tin pot strongman type dictatorships or party states or military dictatorships, you can have really bad leaders and other aspirants to power can step up and take over and that regime form will continue. With the ruling monarchy, succession needs only to be interrupted once and the family deposed from power and that's the end of that regime and the end of, you know, frankly, that bloodline ever touching power in that country ever again. In the modern era, there have only been two instances of a monarchy returning after being deposed. In Spain, in 1947, under the rule of Franco, and in Cambodia, in 1993. With both of these instances, the royal families returned without the same power that they had left with. Spain implemented a constitutional monarchy, while Cambodia established an elective monarchy where the monarch is voted by a council. Despite the challenges posed by succession, monarchies in the Middle East and North Africa continue. But you don't have to travel back too far, and it should quickly become clear that the eight monarchies that do exist are somewhat outliers from the general trend of modern history. Sean explains. If you go back to the early post-colonial period, right after World War II, as the first wave of independence was hitting the region. It's a very different Middle East that we're looking at. The vast majority of people in the Middle East and North Africa by the early 1950s were living under some form of monarchical rule, right? And what began from the early 1950s on through the 1970s was actually a pretty consistent wave of monarchical deposal, demise, or collapse. The Egyptian monarchies deposed uh, in 1952, and by the end of the decade, so too does the very admittedly weak monarchical system of Tunisia give way in the post-French period to the Republic of Hapi Bourguiba. The Hashemites lose power in Jordan, go into the 1960s. You find uh, the Mutawakkil monarchy of North Yemen losing power as well. 
and then you find uh, the Libyan monarchy losing power in, in the late 1960s. And then go into the 1970s, and then the Pahlawis lose power in Iran, in the Iranian revolution. The eight remaining monarchies are survivors. As storms of independence hit the region in the wake of retreats by colonial powers, they continued. So how were they able to survive when so many others fell to the pressure of people and movements? For a number of reasons. I mean, one you know, is the luck of geological draw. Now, if you're Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, uh, the Emirates, and Oman, and you happen to be sitting upon enormous reserves of oil or natural gas, that provides an important reservoir of financing that can allow you to engage in welfare strategies of popular appeasement and of economic development that provide employment, social services, and public goods to citizens that would not have been available if you didn't have access to the, to the revenues unleashed by black gold. Having vast reserves of highly desirable natural resources will certainly help a nation and its monarch. The money derived from sales can be used to fund government jobs, ensure high levels of employment, build and support public infrastructure, such as water and electricity, fund education, health care, support welfare benefits. But the trick for these monarchies is they actually have to provide these services. Just having large amounts of natural resources isn't enough. It didn't help the Libyan monarchy, the Iraqi monarchy, nor the Iranian monarchy, all oil-rich countries. I think what distinguishes the ways that the six Arabian Gulf kingdoms, how they use their hydrocarbon wealth today versus the past, is that monarchies are not static regimes like all other forms of non-democratic regimes. I think they scan the political field. They do their best to understand the regional terrain. I think they very much understand that they're the last of their kind. Right? Moving, ruling monarchies around the world are nearly extinct. Outside the Middle East, there are only two others which are left. I think th these are regimes that learn from the past and understand that in order to persist, they have to distribute, or rather redistribute, and deploy that hydrocarbon wealth more strategically. A top tip for aspiring monarchs. If you want to keep being a monarch, make sure the people you rule over are provided for. But what if you're an aspiring monarch who doesn't have the good fortune of sitting on an ocean of oil? What if you're Jordan or Morocco and you want to ensure your survival? In the Moroccan and Jordanian case, I think foreign support is much more important as these are kingdoms that do not have access to fungible hydrocarbon wealth. And so they are much more dependent upon external aid and international assistance. In the Jordanian case, for instance, we have a Hashemite monarchy on the throne that operates a regime that receives on average from the U.S. alone $1.1 to $1.3 billion a year, which makes Jordan one of the highest per capita aid receiving states in the entire world. The Moroccans have a slightly different configuration. They are less dependent upon foreign aid, although they still receive a significant stream of development assistance from Europe and multilateral donors, but they welcome much more multilateral investment strategies and co-partnerships with foreign donors 
uh, and uh, multinational firms and foreign governments like the Saudi government that infuse that political economy with external capital as well. So foreign support is, I think, much more important to Morocco and Jordan than it is for the Arabian kingdoms. Although for the Arabian kingdoms, their external security is also guaranteed uh, by the United States still today. So that can't be uh, underplayed. I want to welcome back to the White House a good, loyal, and decent friend, uh, His Majesty. And uh, um, we've been hanging out together for a long time. So welcome, 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 welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Ensuring foreign support is the second survival strategy employed by Arab monarchies. And there is a final survival strategy that requires neither colossal oil deposits nor a reliance on foreign aid and support. It's adaptation. Unlike previous generations, those who currently live under the rule of a monarchy know and understand that other forms of government exist, whether they be democratic or not. It also can't go unnoticed that living in an absolute monarchy is not typical, nor is it in high demand. While tens of thousands took to the streets of London this week to see Queen Elizabeth II, you'd be hard-pushed to find those in the UK who want to see a return to absolute monarchy. Ruling monarchies in the Arab world today, not all of them, I would say, most of them have tried to adapt to the times. They've tried to co-opt and traffic in the language of liberalism, of enlightenment, and of political rights that were alien to most of their political lexicons just a generation ago. I think that there are many examples of this we can see in the region. Think about, for instance, the co-optation of the women's rights movement that the Alawite monarchy undertook in the early days of King Muhammad VI's reign in the early 2000s. Think about the quasi-democratic reforms that the Jordanian monarchy frequently promulgates. Those reforms never end up to do much at all. They certainly are not designed to democratize the kingdom by shifting power away from the Hashemite monarchy to the elected parliament, which remains today largely toothless. But it shows that the monarchy understands that the language of democracy and the conceptual terrain of liberalism is one that it must traffic in repeatedly to anchor and justify its legitimacy, which is not something it had to do a generation ago. I think we see resonances of this co-optation, of this lip service to the language of things like egalitarianism, of democratization, of pluralism, of liberty, etc., and some of the Arabian Gulf kingdoms as well. I mean, MBS certainly understands this in Saudi Arabia. He never promises democracy, but he has promised a remarkably less constrictive and more pluralistic kingdom where more ideas which are expressed in the public will be tolerated than in the past. Using wealth from natural resources, the support and aid of foreign governments, and at the very least making notions of liberalisation and enlightenment, monarchies are surviving. These same tactics helped monarchies survive the Arab Spring in 2011, with the exception of Bahrain, who opted for a much more violent path. But just surviving isn't a wholly sustainable model. In the future, they will likely have two options. These two options were laid out in 1968 by American political scientist Samuel Huntington in his book, Political Order in Changing Societies. He called this choice, The King's Dilemma. And The King's Dilemma, as Samuel Huntington described, 
was the following. In the modern era in which colonized territories were becoming newly independent nation states, that ordinary people having access to radio and television were now being exposed to ideas they could never have access before. And the language and lexicon of democracy and enlightenment was no longer the purview of a narrow Western elite, but could circulate freely across the world, particularly to formerly colonized peoples who were selecting new forms of government. Given all these new parameters after World War II, what future did ruling monarchies have back then? The king's dilemma was the following. A dynastic despot had two choices. They could do nothing and almost surely therefore face reactionary backlash in the form of a military coup or a mass revolution that deposed them entirely, or they could promise immediate political reform, gradually and incrementally providing more and more space for their societies to breathe and to exercise a greater amount or scope of civil liberties and freedoms. The years would go by, those peoples would clamor for more and more space to breathe, and in the end, they would legislate themselves out of a job and become nothing more than constitutional monarchies that symbolically have some presence in the nation-state that no longer sit at the towering heights of the state and hold authoritarian power. Free to reign, but not to rule. Given the two choices, gradually allowing more and more space for civil society until a point is reached where they could retain the respect of the populace and at least some of the trappings of a king isn't a terrible choice. If they choose the other option, violent suppression and forcing a nation-state to their will, well, then they have a plethora of history books to choose from, which should give them a pretty good idea of what their fate may be. And I think that for these monarchies, long-term survival requires them to get out of politics and simply reside, as other monarchies in the world do now, as important symbols, institutions, and in fact embodiments of the best qualities of their societies, the best parts of their political systems, right? The best parts of their populations are often organically inscribed into their dynastic heritage. You know, we see this all the time in constitutional monarchies around the world. I mean, I think the British case is an iconic example. It doesn't mean that it's an it's a perfect form of government, and I think the British monarchy deserves plenty of criticism it's gotten over the years. But that being said, I think the fact that the Republican movement in the United Kingdom is always going to be a very small minority of society tells us that the British monarchy has impressive staying power, having gotten out politics more than a century ago for good. And I think the best possible outcome for, say, the Alawites of Morocco, or the Hashemites of Jordan, the Sabah dynasty of Kuwait, even those six ruling families of the UAE would be in the long term for us to envision a type of political regime that competitively and ideally democratically respects and embodies the wishes of these societies, ideally through some form of elected government, but still has an irreplaceable role for these monarchies to play in uniting, symbolically leading, and morally guiding, I think, the social tapestry of these countries. People around the world are not taking to the streets and demanding to be ruled by a monarch. 
people are not calling for power to be handed between a narrow and select bloodline. Nor is there a great desire for the eligibility of a leader to be based on historical ties and symbolism. Increasingly, people want to choose their leaders. They want leaders who can provide for them and have the quality and skills needed to lead a nation. Someone who will give them space to air differing thoughts and ideas. Absolute monarchy is on the decline, and it has been for decades. For the eight remaining monarchies in the Middle East and North Africa, the future will likely be fraught with pitfalls. And one wrong step could see them fall from a very great height. And now, reporter Lise Mouvet with part two of her special report from Calais. The Calais Border Broadcast is a web radio for and with people in exile. It has two aims. The first is to inform people in exile about the different services and um, distributions in Calais and also about um, big, like in-depth asylum questions, questions they would have on asylum. And then the second aspect is to raise awareness and make the, the, their voices heard. Isolde Lucas, who goes by Zuzu, has been working for the past year with the Secours Catholique, an organization supporting migrants and asylum seekers stranded at the border between France and the UK. She runs the Calais Border Broadcast, or CBB, a community radio launched by the Secours Catholique in September 2020 to respond to the critical lack of information faced by migrants. In Calais, there is a big, 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 big information gap where the politics of uh, no fixation, so basically dismantling camps where people live every basically every 48 hours, makes access to information for the guys really, really difficult. Um, so it's just one more means to reach people. Also because there are some people who cannot read, so flyers would not work. And so the audio is quite useful in that for this particular situation. 15 volunteers help write, translate and produce the various CBB programs. They are broadcasted on WhatsApp and YouTube where they can easily be shared even with a poor internet connection. So we have the Flash Info, which is every week where we give information about Calais um, or information that people on the move in Calais need uh, to have information about. We have, so this is every week, then we have the NAG, the New Arrival Guide, which is a A4 paper uh, created by Infobus, an organization in Cali, about all the different distributions, locations, and um, hours of distribution and services. And so we do this in different languages once a month. And then we have the big question where we ask experts to tell us about a topic of uh, about forced migration. Half of the team are migrants. They play a key role in ensuring the radio reaches migrant communities in their own language. The CBB is broadcasted in English, French, Arabic, and Tigrinya. But more translators are needed to reach audiences speaking Dari, Pashto, Farsi, or Kurdish, and to ensure that all communities are heard. The CBB, from what I understood, 
plays first and foremost a role in allowing people on the move to express themselves in sharing their voice, with the idea that their voice precisely is not heard in the media. This is Beatrice Michaud, a professor and researcher in information and communication sciences at the University of Lille and an activist for migrant and refugees' rights. The first community radios were very active politically, also around migration issues, since among the very first community radios we find radios from immigrant worker communities of North Africa. They were also trying to give a platform to these men and women who were completely invisibilized in public spaces and media. I asked Beatrice why radio is so popular among activists and marginalized communities. The fact that it relies on voice and in the end invisibilizes the body, this helps resolve a lot of issues around one's position, posture, anonymity, about what I show about myself when I speak out, what I risk if I speak out. Images and TV are totally avoided here by most people on the move, simply because it represents a legal risk a security risk for them. When speaking out in front of a mic, being invisible and unrecognizable, this allows them to share opinions, advices, emotions, without taking this risk. These opportunities to speak out are often joyful occasions. We had a beautiful moment this year. I think it's one of the of the moment I will remember the most about the radio in Calais. Um, it's when we put the radio table outside in the Secours Catholic Day Center and we were doing an open mic. And, and I was a bit stressed. I was thinking like, oh, no one is coming. It's not going to work today. And then, um, and then Mohammed, I would call him Mohammed. Mohammed came um, and sat there and started interview, like just started calling out people to for them to come and sit with him. And so this man arrived, Basil, uh, and he was Syrian. So we had this Sudanese interviewer uh, interviewing Basil, who was from Syria. And it was a beautiful moment to see those two communities getting together. But despite its important role, the CBB has limited means. With such a small team, sharing verified news in four languages on a weekly basis is challenging. Sohail, a Sudanese refugee in Calais, tells us about his experience of the radio. At the moment, I don't listen to the radio because I feel that the news come a bit late. Every week, it talks about the previous week. From our point of view, some of it isn't useful because it doesn't come at the right time. Sometimes they publish information that I've already heard. There are people in the jungle who have information before the radio publishes it. The CBB also struggles to reach a wide audience in the context of Kelly where volunteers and migrants are always on the move. Over 250 people receive the weekly news on WhatsApp, and over 700 people follow the channel's Facebook page. But this is still small compared to the 2,000 migrants stranded on the northern French coast. In most cases, 
They say things that are meant to reach the migrants. But if the migrants don't listen to the radio, how will they know? If the refugees don't even know there is a radio. Despite these challenges, the CBB has become a crucial mean to quickly share information with the community of migrants and volunteers. What is good when they share information about how to find clothes, how to find items, how to go there? All of this is on the radio. For example, last month, two months ago, we did a big question on safety at sea. Um, And it was really, really appreciated by the guys. Uh, And we did it in more than 10 languages. Because we really believe the big question is a program that really can save lives. Such programs also help raise migrants' awareness about their rights and create a safe space where pressing questions on health, safety and rights can be raised. A recent announcement by the British government has had many worried. So from today, our new migration and economic development partnership will mean that anyone entering the UK illegally, as well as those who have arrived illegally since January the 1st, may now be relocated to Rwanda. Now that there are all this concern about what the UK is going to be doing with the asylum seekers, the guys are are not sure uh, who to trust, what newspapers, uh, who says what, because it's quite... I mean, we all struggle to have information we trust. And so they have a a big trust in this uh, radio we have. At heart, the CBB is a true community radio, designed with by and for its listeners. What makes it special, but also so challenging to produce, is their diversity. Volunteers, priests, migrants, the elderly and the young, people who hail from dozens of countries, speak different languages and practice different religions. Lise Mouvet concluding that report from Calais. If you want to listen to part one of her special report, you can go to last week's episode. The New Arab Voice was produced and written by me, Hugo Goodridge, with additional help from Rosie McCabe. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Twitter account and Instagram page, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region. (laughs) 